0: Welcome to the great conversation where ideas matter, ideas shape markets, ideas can change the world. One of the things I've learned over the course of 40 years in business is the, uh, the innate power of story. Uh, it's been at the center of my career, it's been at the center of my consulting practice, but it. Even though it's simple to make that statement, it's complex in its implementation. But the why of it, the why of it is profound. The why of it will define the identities of the people you deal with, your own personal identity, and if I might suggest, even your purpose. I wanted to track down a gentleman who discovered this for himself and is now living it out with a company called Narrative Strategies. Paul Koba is the vice president of Narrative Strategy. He's the author of Soft Power on Hard Problems and Narrative Warfare. Paul, great having you
1: on The Great Conversation. I'm delighted and honored to be here. Thanks for inviting me.
0: I uh, since narrative is the title of one of your books and narrative, the word narrative takes on special significance in your company's company's name. Let's see if we can define narrative and the why of narrative in narrative strategies, engagement with our government and the world.
1: Can we do that? I'm gonna start with what you added to the mix, purpose. So that's always a good place to begin, that and establishing an understanding of what the terms really mean. So my purpose is from a military background was to influence audiences pro and oppositional that best supported U.S. national security objectives. And still that, I still work in that field. So that's my purpose, to do, to employ what I consider ethical influence is in support by national security objectives. That pretty much sums up my purpose. What I didn't realize was based on my long background with dealing with foreign audiences, which were my clients when I was a custom builder, is that everybody is wired a little bit differently and they often will use stories to make a point that will help influence the outcome that they desire. So, when I, be, when I came back to the military after a long time off and started being deployed to different parts of the world that were less than hospitable, I also found that it was more, not only cost effective, but it was safer for the lives that mattered to do things as safely and as effectively as possible and in a manner that sustains itself as opposed to just being a temp, temp fix. So I tried to think of as military's way, first time out, and it was an absolute failure. The system is broken beyond comprehension, and that is worthy of a complete conversation by itself. National security, DOD is completely broken when it comes to being able to influence and support their objectives. And by the way, every single thing that we do in the U.S. involves influence. Let's stop this nonsense about, well, let's add some influence to this, or we'll just bring it in intermittently. No, that's not the way it works. So what I started doing was I started what I, at the time termed telling stories because I had no idea what narrative was because the military doesn't train you about this kind of thing. So the second time out, I had an extraordinary amount of success. It's because in the few months between what the that deployment and the next deployment, I sat down on my own, chased down every source I could find preferably not related to the military or national security community. I just wanted to learn the basics about who my audiences were and are to this day. And so once I learned who they were, I could trigger them with what I then called stories. But this segues into, let's get back to some definitional terms. So narrative, let's talk about what narrative really is at first. A narrative, we know it, basically two ways in my world. And for the majority of the world, there's only one way, which is as a rhetorical tool. Newscaster drop this, politicians drop that line. Everybody, companies, CEOs, they always say, well, what's the narrative? Or let's create a narrative. Well, yeah, it's, that's a rhetorical tool and it is crucial, but it is virtually irrelevant if you don't understand what narrative the phenomenon is. And human beings, according to Dr. Mon, my colleague and dear friend, human beings are meaning-seeking creatures from the time we walked upright, maybe before. We have to figure out the meaning of what's all the stimulus that's coming at us, vision, sound, physically, weather-wise. I mean, everything that's coming at us requires a decision. And the phenomenon of narrative is how we learn from our experiences, most of it subconsciously, by the way, in order to make the decisions that get us safely through our life. What's, what I found out that I was doing with in my deployments was I was triggering that subconscious meaning-making now between our ears of my audiences. And in, what's important to realize the distinction between narrative, both forms, and stories is... Stories are what make up a narrative. That's how, And if you sit down at a family reunion, there's always the the story about this uncle or my your grandfather or that crazy cousin 20, 20 generations back. Narratives are not about truth. They're about meaning. So we've associated some meaning with that story that populates our family narrative. This is about the best way I could explain that. So stories are, well, let's, let's do it this way. A puzzle, a jigsaw puzzle will create a picture that tells you something that you, it, it's the objective of putting it all together is to see what it means. Each piece in that puzzle is a story by itself when it comes to human narrative. A symbol altogether, that jigsaw puzzle becomes your family narrative. So those stories are what populate the puzzle. Anyway, so the thing is, because human beings are conditioning and evolving their internal narrative over the course of their life, it's important to understand that life through their eyes. what A lot of people, instead of saying narrative identity, they will use the expression worldview. Everybody has their own unique worldview. And the way I've had the best luck explaining this to people is people that you're close to, a spouse, a partner, a cousin, a sibling, a parent, you know when you say or do anything to them or around them precisely what their reaction will be. There's no doubt in your mind that if I say this or or poke poke them this way or that, I will get a reaction. And they do that instinctively. They don't even think about it. And that's the depth you need to learn about your audiences. This conventional target audience analysis doesn't, it doesn't even begin to scratch the surface of that. So for example, I just did, I spent about three to four years, about half of my research time, trying to figure out what exactly was Xi's narrative in China going forward. His what I call his his narrative of ascension. Chinese dissension and after three or four years of intense deep study going back 4,000 years, I came up with a paragraph that defines it well, as simply as possible. And if that's the level of effort it requires to do your target audience analysis or what we call it narrative strategies, narrative identity analysis. We know which buttons, I know which buttons to push that will automatically trigger a response in Xi's version of China at this stage. And there's nothing that he's doing that is any different than 4,000 years, especially the last 21, 2200 years of Chinese history from the beginning of the Han, uh, Han dynasty. He just calls it different names. For example, legalism was an administrative system based on some moral and immoral beliefs that the beginning of the Han Dynasty used to organize and administrate the Chinese kingdom, the emperorship. Today, they call it the CCP. They act the same. And the basic tenets of legalism and the CCP is all human beings are immoral, they're they're corrupt, they will be as corrupt as they possibly can unless something changes it. No, but nobody cares at the emperor level or son of heaven in Chinese for the Chinese narrative. As long as the son of heaven gets what his cut, I don't care how corrupt you are. And if I need a scapegoat, I will use that corruption to eliminate my, my power rival. And every time you can bet that she is in deep trouble now looking at China, if he's starting an anti-corruption campaign again, because somebody's going to fall on her sword, to, so he can keep going in power. And I'm not sure if I'm just going way off in a lot of tangents here, Ron. So, help me go towards what you're looking for specifically. Well, again, in a great conversation, um, I'm not
0: trying to manipulate an outcome.
1: <laughs> no, <laughs> I, no, no. I just want no, to no, you no. Know, no. Just, I, I, I I say
0: this it. I say this sincerely for the audience too, so mm-hmm. they know that you and I go into this conversation unscripted. And so we're going with the flow. This is a musical piece, if you will. We're both playing instruments. And, and everything you said is very profound because we're getting to the essence of why narrative matters. I've always said, it's so interesting. I've always said story matters, but I didn't explain it like you have. I love the idea that stories are puzzle pieces, leading to a picture of a worldview or a narrative identity. And this could, in this interesting example, could be a narrative that's built up over thousands of years. It's evolutionary, if you will. You know, it's Darwinian in scope, if you will, because Mm -hmm. it's been about survival, safety, security, and that elusive term purpose. What story am I pursuing intentionally that will confirm my identity through the story I've manufactured over all these thousands of years? Do
1: I have it? That's, uh, I like the Darwinian aspect of what you just added there, because that's exactly what it is. Oh, so ask a question again, I was I got so caught oh, up? So no, I was confer- I was confirming we're on the oh, right track.
0: Yeah. We're not wandering in this conversation. We're getting to a very essential thing, and then we're going to carry it over to execution. If this is true, if I can understand the unconscious and conscious, conscious story that leads to a worldview or a narrative identity, then I can influence the direction of another or even a
1: culture or even a marketplace. Do I have that right? Specifically, and the best example will be in the book that you just ordered. Thank you, by the way, from Dr. Mon and I. The introduction is an experience I had in Eastern Afghanistan about 11 miles from the Pakistani border. And it was with a young Taliban detainee. And what, it, that little story that I tell about how what, how I triggered his internal narrative is a really good, it's just a short two or three page little story to read, but it tells exactly how I broke his, his Taliban narrative and reconnected him with his tribal cultural narratives. Not that they had a, an enormous difference in what they were doing at the time, but it Reconnected that tribal identity called Pashtunwali in the way of literally the way of the Pashtun, as interpreted by Eastern Pashtuns, a Gilzai Federation, by reconnecting him to that, it reconnected him to the stark honor-shame relationship of Pashtuns that operate on Pashtunwali. And that was the purpose to reconnect him to the honor. So you can't shame somebody for bad behavior if they have no honor and vice versa. It's a yin and yang kind of thing. Okay,
0: I, let's, let's uh, pause on that one. Okay. Uh, because, you no, know, I, I love examples that bring it home. Let's bring it to current events. There are also, there's always forces in the marketplace and or in, uh, in the world. There's always forces in the world that whether they're doing it consciously or unconsciously are trying to influence the behaviors of another. So we, that, that's a general rule of thumb. We're always trying to influence the behavior of another, uh, either in groups or singularly. Now, with that said, we also have this narrative identity built up as we use the term Darwinian in a Darwinian way, something that's fundamental to us. So, as we're being influenced, right? As we're being influenced, like the Taliban was influencing Pashtun culture, what you did is recognize um, possibly, hate to use the word evil, but the repercussions of getting sucked into a Taliban political identity, and you rewired the synopsis of his worldview into his native identity.
1: Did did I get that right? Yeah, you did. Exactly. Because the Taliban, especially Eastern Afghanistan, are very much affiliated with global extremist organizations who do not see the world through Pashtun Wali. Now, most Pashtuns will see Pashtun Wali as Islam, although it predates Islam by several hundred years. But they have Instituted into their identity that Pashtun Ali is Islam, so it's, it's synonymous in many respects, not entirely. Where the conflict, internal conflict, was coming for this young fighter was that he was being spoon-fed, actually force-fed, all this radical Islamic ideology. So there was already a little conflict brewing inside him. It didn't take a lot to trigger, and he had no idea he was being triggered because I had learned not only. What his identity was, but I also learned how to express it sitting in face to face with him. For example, because I came back to the military, I was almost 50 when I came back, and I was in my mid 50s by the time I was sitting in front of this guy in Eastern Afghanistan. And in Eastern Afghanistan, in Pashtun cultures, especially the tr- small tribes or cells that in little valleys, being an elder means something. So I would sit down, as I explained in the story in the book, is that. I sat down in front of him upright, but leaning a little bit back, and I spoke in a firm, gentle, a gentle but very firm voice, but I spoke quietly, which forced him physically to lean in towards me. So he'd already, I'd already triggered him to show deference to me. I said, if the army would allow it, because I was sitting in civilian clothes, and if the army would allow it, I would have a long gray beard. Having a long gray beard has extremes, not want to say extreme, but significant cultural relevance because it shows that I'm older and wiser. So already he was off his game as far as resisting what I wasn't there to interrogate him. What I would do is I would just sit down and talk with people because if, when they got released, they would go back to their village or their community and the Taliban would debrief them. What did they ask? What 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 they ask? Why did they ask that? Who said this? Who said what? So he went back or he I knew he would go back And say, oh, I'm not sure I'm in this game anymore. (laughs) And if he talked to his cousins in a patrilineal society, then maybe he would influence his cousins to not do the same. And they would start showing more deference to their elders over the course of this deployment. By the end of this deployment, the accessibility to Eastern Afghanistan by Taliban coming from across the border in Pakistan had decreased significantly. And it's because my my immediate attempt was to reinvigorate the honored tribal code that where people would have to ask permission to transit a village or a valley and where the elders had gotten to be too afraid by building up support for tradition, it was also synonymous. Um, simultaneously denying Taliban access, so there was a method to my madness, at least that was one of my objectives. But I didn't know until five years later that what I was doing was called narrative. I just kept doing it because it worked. And I kept refining my approach and by refining my understanding of the different populaces and different tactics for different groups at different target audiences. Next time out, I went up to the North. Tajiks, Turkmen, (laughs) dislocated, relocated posthumes who were unpopular. Just so many different ethnic groups up there. So I had to go and find the identity of all of them in order to succeed in denying the Taliban or oppositional forces access. That's closer uh, to like Mazar Sharif and the Russian border. I love Mazar Sharif. <laughs> it's a beautiful part of the world up there. And the people are amazing. Actually, most of Afghan people, regardless of ethnicity, are amazing. The Taliban are, they're more to me an insurgency that's been used and commandeered by extremism Mm -hmm. so we're better off with them for sure in afghanistan as long as they behave with human rights dignity than we are with the government type of government we try to institute people said oh we have to have democracy well if you've never sat in a jurga circle that the jurga circle where there's a first among elders nobody is the chief That is the purest form of Athenian democracy that exists on the planet today. So why are we teaching democracy? What we're trying to force down their throat is our version of it. And we can see how that worked out. So democracy, again, is a word that
0: was used uh, to describe uh, society and how it would function just like Z learned his ideology, right? And you know, we can't we can't necessarily put that on top of what isn't a country. Afghanistan's not a country. It's a it's a it's a bunch of tribes that are built on thousands of years of history of of the narrative
1: they told themselves, right? Right. That's evolved. And and those narratives evolve, by the way. That's the Darwinian aspect of what you're talking about. Everybody's, every person, every group every family, every nation, everybody's identity evolves Yeah, slowly, but it evolves, to use another analogy, like a river. A river changes course over time, but you don't, unless there's a major event, like a massive 500-year flood, it's not going to change a lot at any one time. It's very fairly unnoticeable. Yeah, isn't it
0: fascinating? You know, we, how we forget things. Um, I was, I was commenting the other day, um, the narrative many of us in the media and others are are telling about the Ukrainian conflict with the Russians is the Russians are using tactics that are evil in their scorched earth campaign to take over Ukraine. And uh, I got in trouble the other day. I said it's similar to the techniques that Abraham Lincoln's General Sherman used uh, to finally defeat the South. Right. And, and 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 then I ended my my little blog with war is hell. Yeah. War is hell. War is about winning. It's not an ethical thing. It's just war. Oh, and yeah. the people the people behind it are, you know, are trying to achieve something. But if you're you're playing with that kind of fire, you're in trouble. Now, and this is the let's end on this note. Because in studying um, your company's literature and some of the blogs and some of the videos I've watched, and with your own words today saying, you've got to do that in a non-manipulative way, how would narrative strategy become a global bridge for understanding national cultures in a way that would improve this world? Is there hope on an evolutionary basis to use the Darwinian thing, is there hope for mankind that we will learn to adopt these tools for understanding and peace and civility in the
1: world? Absolutely. But we have to break a whole literally millennia of, of narratives amongst certain groups and certain audiences. The generational right. streams. right? Those generational streams of power seeking for the purpose of power. Well, there's always a purpose to power. So why do you why do you want to have power? Do you want to have more money? Do you want to control more stuff? Or do you want to use your power? you know the old phrase, the old proverb about using your your, your power for good, not evil just how focused are people on their purpose? And I'm glad you introduced purpose to this conversation. It's critically important. Uh, I just do want to correct one thing, not so much as a correction, but I'm going to fine tune it. Everything I do in order to help people understand and to evolve, in order to be able to create ethical influence, not just for the U.S., but for our allies and partners, the rules the global rules-based order of the world is, yes, we're all trying to influence. That's what narrative is. Narrative at its very core is its influence, but it's influenced through a specific filter, a specific lens. But I'm trying to ethically influence people to use this power for good, to do exactly what you just described, to build the bridges that, de- that unevolve if that's a word devolve the power mongers the power seekers for the purpose of just dominance in their own greed there's nothing wrong with making a lot of money I mean, i encourage that but do it ethically what uh um, by the way you and i both get in a lot of trouble for telling truth
0: well <laughs> i think i think uh there have been many truth tellers that have been put on the cross or to death for that reason. Um, but let's, let's, I I'm fascinated. And I really want to end on this. I, you know, I'm, I'd like to boil things down so I can use them later. So if I was listening to this conversation, here's what I've heard so far and see, see if I'm listening correctly. Um, understanding the narrative of another. And I I got this from one of Scott Mann's um, uh, speeches. What I realized is timing is everything too. If you're going to see change in your lifetime, and, and the reason where timing became everything is when Scott was talking about how they missed the window in Afghanistan. Right, they, they went in seeking revenge. We were gonna find that guy who took us down in 9 11. We're gonna that it was all about revenge, and the narrative came too late. It was working, but it came too late, which I really found fascinating. So, I'm gonna put timing is everything in narrative.
1: Um, I just interject one thing about timing yeah. because this is so key, and it's one of our biggest reasons for consistently failing in the US and allied national security, security community. Narrative requires narrators. Narrators in order to maintain a primary place in the conversation require sustained engagement with the audience based on their identity and their, his identity or her identity. In other words, you're trying to bond identities. Because once that identity is bonded between narrator and audience, it's really hard to shape. And where it matters in timing is the U.S. classically just sits back and waits for something to happen. Then they react. Well, in the time that you've reacted, that your adversary has already established their narrative meaning for all of the audiences. Yeah. And once counter narratives don't work. Not unless you have a dominant, offensive, proactive voice in the environment. Counter-narratives are a waste of time and money. I agree. And I've seen this played off. There's so many stories
0: um, that are being told right now about so many things. No one's taking those story pieces, those puzzle pieces together in a holistic way. So we're floundering. We're all over the place right now, Right. right? And no one's doing that. So I love that narration requires narrators (laughs) i love that i'm going to put that as number two number three is how you narrate the tone tenor the words you use i call that expression how you narrate yes Um, generational context what you call the elders generational context absolutely and then um And then this, when you mentioned this, it reminded me when I first entered the marketplace on Dress for Success, (laughs) you need to physically show up. Uh, uh, In the Bible, the apostle Paul shaves off his beard to talk to the Greeks. Yeah. You've got to physically show up. You've got to put your physical identity to the side and merge with your audience. Am I getting those correct?
1: Yes. And in order to you don't have to change who you are in presentation, but you have to ex- be able to explain who you are and who you represent and how you represent. Very good. Very in good. terms of a, a way that somebody with that particular worldview can can understand it. Yeah, because they're seeking to identify with you. Right. So I couldn't have a long gray beard because the army said, "Oh, hell no." <laughs> but what I could tell them is, if the army would allow me then I would have a long gray beard. I've been around the block a couple of times. And know, sorry about all of the swearing, but it's, I'm an old grumpy warrant officer. So that's that's how we roll with our, with our cup of coffee. Well, I <laughs> must admit I've never had a conversation with
0: an old grumpy warrant officer, but this <laughs> has been a great conversation with Paul Paul Koba. Paul, uh, I see this leading to other conversations. We've only kind of hit the... Tip of the iceberg, I encourage everyone like I did uh, to go to the narrative strategies page as well as Paul Koba's LinkedIn to look at the various publication and resources where you can study this. Uh, I promise you, if you do this, this isn't just a national defense uh, tactic. This is a personal, professional, cultural expression of who we are and, and could lead to greater understanding uh, in our times.
1: Paul, thank you so And I'm great anytime for an opportunity to talk. I would love to include Dr. Mon. Heck, even Scott, if we could talk Scott out of his biggest busy schedule. He's one of my, Dr. Mon and Scott are some of my favorite people on the planet. I mean, they're just built for the right reasons. Well, and then, uh, as
0: well, uh, this is service to a, a larger cause. You know, we, we famously like to say to our, our military, thank you for your service. But very, very seldom do we look at you as a human being and say, thank you for your service. Thank you for your service as a human being, Paul. I appreciate it.
1: I'm humbly honored. Thank you. This has been a great conversation.